Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 17th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Federal OSHA recently enacted a vaccine mandate for much of the nation's workforce. The mandate, which employers must enforce, applied to roughly 84 million workers covering virtually all employers with at least 100 employees. Many states, businesses, and nonprofit organizations challenged OSHA's rule in courts of appeal across the country. The litigation efforts to stop the mandate ultimately ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard oral arguments on the issues and published a ruling in the case of National Federation of Independent Businesses versus OSHA. The 6-3 majority ruled against the OSHA-imposed vaccine mandate, finding that the plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits of their claim that the secretary lacked authority to impose the mandate. Administrative agencies are creatures of statute. They accordingly possess only the authority that Congress has provided them. The dissenting opinion said that OSHA's mandate is comparable to a fire and sanitation regulation imposed by OSHA. But the majority responded that a vaccine mandate is strikingly unlike the workplace regulations that OSHA has typically imposed. They added that a vaccination, after all, cannot be undone at the end of the workday. And they said they expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. And although Congress has indisputably given OSHA the power to regulate occupational dangers, it has not given that agency the power to regulate public health more broadly. It said that requiring the vaccination of 84 million Americans selected simply because they work for employers with more than 100 employees certainly falls under this latter category. President Biden responded to the ruling by saying he was disappointed that the Supreme Court has chosen to block common-sense life-saving requirements for employees at large businesses. However, in the companion Supreme Court case of Biden versus Missouri, the 5-4 majority approved the HHS-CMS omnibus rule mandating that medical facilities nationwide order their employees, volunteers, contractors, and other workers to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. The majority in this second case reasoned that COVID-19 is a highly contagious dangerous, and especially for Medicare and Medicaid patients, deadly disease. HHS determined that a COVID-19 vaccine mandate will substantially reduce the likelihood that healthcare workers will contract the virus and then transmit it to their patients. They concluded that the HHS-CMS rule fits neatly within the language of current statutes. Ensuring that providers take steps to avoid transmitting a dangerous virus to their patients is consistent with the fundamental principle of the medical profession, first do no harm. The California Court of Appeal affirmed a Cal OSHA citation for a freeway construction injury. 
In this case, Atkinson Construction employees were erecting false work back in 2014 near the I-105, I-605 interchange in Seal Beach, California for a new freeway bridge. A forklift attempting to position a long steel beam atop two vertical false work structures known as bents accidentally hit another beam, causing that beam and another to overturn and fall off the bents. Each of the steel beams weighed about 60,000 pounds each. As the beams collapsed, Ramon Torres, an employee standing on one of the bents, fell nearly 30 feet to the ground. He suffered serious physical injuries from that fall. The division cited Atkinson for violating a construction safety order, Section 1709, that requires beams to be braced laterally and progressively to prevent overturning. The company appealed the citation, but the Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board denied their appeal. It then filed a petition for a writ of administrative mandate in the Superior Court. It was also denied. Atkinson then appealed that denial to the Court of Appeal, arguing that the cited citation, Section 1709 Safety Order, does not apply because another more specific safety order governs false work operations, and that it did comply with the more specific safety order. But the Court of Appeal was not persuaded by these arguments and affirmed the citation in the unpublished case of Atkinson Construction versus DIR, Division of Occupational Safety and Health. It reasoned that the language of Section 1709 clearly states that trusses and beams shall be braced laterally and progressively during construction to prevent buckling or overturning. Despite the safety order's plain language, Atkinson argues that Section 1709 does not apply to false work operations. It contends that false work is a separate and distinct type of construction with its own specific safety order, Section 1717. And therefore, the absence of any reference to false work in Section 1709 necessarily implies that it applies only to non-false work construction. However, the opinion noted that prior board decisions establish that more than one safety order may apply to a particular set of facts, even when the construction involves false work. Here, Section 1709 is part of the specific injury safety orders promulgated for the construction industry. Such construction safety orders establish minimum safety standards that apply to any employment situation. Thus, Atkinson's false work operations were covered by the construction safety orders including Section 1709. UC San Diego Health, the academic health system of the University of California at San Diego, has paid nearly $3 million to resolve allegations that it violated the False Claims Act by ordering medically unnecessary genetic testing. UC San Diego Health allegedly ordered and submitted referrals for medically unnecessary 
genetic testing performed by Sequentia Arkansas Labs, Sequentia NGS, and Total Diagnostic 2. The government alleged that this conduct led to the submission of false claims for payment to Medicare for unnecessary genetic testing. A spokesman for UC San Diego Health said that UC San Diego Health did not admit any liability as part of the settlement, which now allowed the provider to continue to focus on patient care instead of litigation. She also said that working at this forefront of patient care sometimes involves the use of new technologies from emerging companies. When UC San Diego Health learned that the Department of Justice had concerns about one of its technology providers, it fully cooperated and promptly resolved the matter. The DOJ settlement announcement alleges that its doctors ordered tests from a company that then allegedly made false claims about those orders. Tennessee-based Sequentia has since apparently gone out of business. As its website simply states, Sequentia has been closed and tells previous customers how to obtain medical records. And now our crime report. The Employment Development Department just announced that it suspended account activity for about 27,000 suspicious medical provider registrants and 345,000 claims associated with those providers or other suspicious activity. While the majority of these providers and claims were likely fraud attempts, the department has partnered with state regulators and medical provider organizations to coordinate the verification process to clear any legitimate claims as quickly as possible. EDD's top priority includes working to contact all claimants who have had their claim held up in this identity theft scam. Purported medical providers must now complete further identity verification with ID.me to potentially certify any disability claims. These personalized requests for medical provider verification through ID.me only comes from an official EDD email address ending in at edd.ca.gov. Medical providers who receive emails with information about how to verify identity through ID.me should carefully confirm the sender's sender's at ed.ca.gov email address. Scammers have been known to impersonate government agencies in an attempt to trick people into clicking fake links. Those who receive communications from EDD regarding a medical provider online account being created in the DI system or an application for public benefits such as disability or unemployment insurance who believe someone filed a claim falsely should file a fraud report by visiting Ask EDD and select, selecting the Report Fraud category to complete the fraud reporting form. Identity theft victims also want to file an identity theft report with the Federal Trade Commission. The EDD said it continues to enhance and update information on the Help Fight Fraud webpage. Disability insurance claimants have continued to receive payments 
if they were not associated with the recent scam attempts. And in regulatory news, the COVID Omicron outbreak has caused the WCAB to at least temporarily return to telephonic hearings. The DWC announced that as of January 12, 2022, all hearings will be heard virtually. It will telephonically hear all trials, lean trials, expedited hearings, and special adjudication unit trials until further notice. In addition, mandatory settlement conferences, priority conferences, status conferences, SAU conferences, and lean conferences will continue to be held on the individually assigned judges' conference lines. The pause will continue through the end of the month and will be reevaluated at that time. The DWC hearing notices will not change, but parties should be aware that as of January 12th, If a trial, expedited hearing, lean trial, or SAU trial is set at a district office, all parties should call the judge's assigned conference line and not appear in person. All division offices will still remain open during this time. If a party to a DWC hearing has a question on a specific case, they may contact the DWC call center at 909 3834522 3834522 And the DWC is not the only court system facing Omicron surge related problems. The Santa Clara County Superior Court announced that it is closing public counters and restricting courthouse entry through the end of the month. This was caused by staffing absences driven by the rapidly spreading Omicron variant. Santa Clara County joins other Bay Area courts that have also been limiting public access. The decrease in the public's access to South Bay court facilities is effective through January 31st, at which point officials plan to reevaluate whether to rescind or modify these restrictions. This marks at least the third large-scale order in Santa Clara County to restrict court availability. Courthouses across the state were largely shuttered in the first few months of the pandemic and began widely installing teleconference and videoconference lines to maintain some level of court access. The presiding judge said in a statement that the court is experiencing a significant number of employee absences, creating staffing shortages across all departments of the court. He is hopeful that these circumstances are transitory and will be evaluated and reevaluated in coming weeks. And in San Mateo County, court officials have shifted many non-criminal hearings from in-person to Zoom, and they have consolidated preliminary hearings to court facilities in Redwood City. Both San Mateo and Contra Costa counties have obtained emergency authorization from the state from the state's judicial council which governs superior court operations in California to postpone jury selection panels and trials that were set to start in January by as many as 30 days. And in Alameda County the court has temporarily decreased telephone and in-person access to clerk's offices to allow the courts to mitigate the ongoing surge in COVID's case. 
The court will continue to monitor the situation and make additional changes as circumstances warrant. The Alameda County Court has also obtained authorization to postpone jury trials set to start in January and also to treat most of January as a holiday when it comes to many court filing deadlines. But it has also revived an emergency order which was highly criticized as a due process violation when it was implemented in the first few months of the pandemic. But there is also some good news for California courts. They will see a sizable funding boost as part of Governor Newsom's $4.9 billion judicial branch budget package that reflects a commitment to cybersecurity and other technology investments. His proposal includes $34.7 million for electronic filing, digitizing records, and updating case management software, with plans to increase that amount to $40.3 million in 2025 through 26. It also devotes $33.2 million for better access to remote proceedings each year for two years, with $1.6 million in ongoing funding thereafter. Governor Newsom said these resources will be used to provide a publicly accessible audio stream for every courthouse in the state. Cybersecurity and remote technology have taken center stage as courts moved to proceedings online during the COVID-19 pandemic, a change made all more permanent with the passage of Assembly Bill 716 last year. Assembly Bill 716 requires courts to provide streaming, audio, or public call-in lines when courthouses close for public health reasons. The Judicial Council Administrative Director said that there's a big year coming up for the trial courts. In this window in time, the courts will still be dealing with pandemic impacts. And at the same time, they have to balance two modes of operation, which are in-person and remote activity. The budget proposal also provides funding for other online services, like $2.6 million in 2022-23 and $1.7 million ongoing for electronic filing systems for domestic and gun violence restraining orders. Other funds include $42.6 million in 2022-23 and $42.3 million ongoing to hire 23 state court judges. Funding for new courthouses in Fresno, Santa Clarita, Fairfield, Quincy, and San Luis Obispo. Also three projects already approved by the council, a new courthouse in Mendocino County, and renovations to juvenile facilities in San Bernardino and Butte counties. Newsom's proposal drew an initial positive reaction from the Chief Justice, who welcomed the governor's continuing commitment to sustainable judicial branch funding in his landmark budget proposal. The Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, and Treasury announced new guidance outlining how insurers and group health plans will be required to cover and reimburse enrollees for up to eight at-home tests for COVID-19. 
This new policy applies to test purchased beginning on January 15, 2022, through the end of the declared public health emergency. Under the new guidance, insurers are incentivized to use their bargaining power within network pharmacies and other retailers to ensure that enrollees can obtain at-home COVID-19 tests without cost-sharing at the pharmacy or retail counter. The January 10 guidance clarifies that insurers and plans must cover and reimburse members for up to eight over-the-counter COVID-19 diagnostic tests per enrollee per 30-day period. In general, insurers and plans cannot limit coverage or reimbursement to only tests purchased at in-network pharmacies and other retailers. Put another way, a member can seek reimbursement no matter where they purchase their test from, whether at an in-network pharmacy or through Amazon. But HHS strongly encourages insurers and plans to pay manufacturers or sellers directly for OTC COVID-19 tests. To that end, the guidance creates a safe harbor from enforcement for those that set up a direct coverage option. Under this option, the insurer or plan will arrange for over-the-counter COVID-19 tests to be free with no cost sharing for enrollees through its in-network pharmacies and other retailers. Insurers and plans cannot impose prior authorization or medical management requirements and must ensure that members truly have access to COVID-19 tests through an adequate number of retail locations. Those that offer direct coverage will be allowed to limit reimbursement to $12 per test or the actual price of the test, whichever is lower, when a member purchases a test from a non-network pharmacy or retailer. This $12 limit helps mitigate the risk of price gouging by manufacturers and sellers. If payer reimbursement was uncapped, manufacturers and sellers might be tempted to raise the price of tests significantly, putting COVID-19 tests further out of reach for millions of people. Insurers and plans can take reasonable steps to prevent, detect, and address suspected fraud and abuse. And the guidance identifies some examples of permissible activities for doing so. For instance, an insurer or a plan can require an attestation, signature, or proof of purchase to confirm that an OTC COVID-19 test was purchased for the enrollee's use as opposed to someone else's use, and has not been reimbursed by another source, and is not for resale. Insurers and plans can adopt these types of fraud prevention measures so long as they do not create significant barriers for obtaining tests, such as requiring enrollees to submit documents or delaying reimbursement. The California Department of Public Health issued new guidance that allows healthcare networks to enable COVID-19 positive employees to keep working if they show don't show any symptoms. A statement to news outlets said that the department is providing this temporary flexibility 
to help hospitals and emergency service providers respond to an unprecedented surge in hospital admissions and staffing shortages. However, hospitals have to exhaust all other options before resorting to this temporary tool. Facilities and providers using this tool should have asymptomatic COVID-19 positive workers interact only with COVID-19 positive patients to the extent possible. Healthcare workers in the state now do not have to isolate or show a negative COVID-19 test before coming back to work if they are not symptomatic. The guidance remains in effect until February 1st and stipulates that this staff wear N95 respirator masks while on the job. Several unions that represent nurses and other hospital staff expressed alarm over this new guidance. The head of the SEIU California Union said that allowing employees to bring back workers who may still be infectious is one of the worst ideas he has heard during this entire pandemic. He added that the latest guidance imperils a critical piece of protection that our workers and the public need. And the president of the California Nurses Association said that the California Health Department's guidance will put patients at risk. But the union officials did not mention the rampant staffing issues that have plagued hospitals across the country and in California in recent days. Health giant Kaiser Permanente suspended more than 2,000 employees who were not vaccinated in last October. Other California systems, such as Santa Clara Valley Medical Center and Sutter Health, also terminated or suspended their employees who were not vaccinated in the fall of 2021. And now our medical news. A new study just published in Nature Communications by the Imperial College London found that high levels of T-cells from the common cold coronaviruses can provide protection against COVID-19. Scientists have long suspected that T-cells believed to play a vital role in providing protection. However, evidence of whether these T-cells could provide such a protective effect has been lacking. The new study, one of the first designed to find such scientific evidence, began in September of 2020. It looked at levels of cross-reactive T-cells generated by previous common colds in 52 household contacts of positive COVID-19 cases shortly after exposure. They wanted to see if they went on to develop infection. It found that the 26 who did not develop infection had significantly higher levels of those T-cells than people who do did get infected. But the researchers did not say how long protection from the T-cells would last. The study author concluded that high levels of pre-existing T-cells created by the body when infected with other human coronaviruses like the common cold can protect against COVID-19 infection. Current COVID-19 vaccines target the spike protein, 
which mutates regularly, creating variants such as Omicron, which lessens the efficacy of vaccines against symptomatic infection. And a co-author of the study said that in contrast, the internal proteins targeted by the protective T-cells mutate much less. Consequently, they are highly conserved between various SARS-CoV-2 variants, including Omicron. New vaccines that include these conserved internal proteins would therefore induce broadly protective T-cell responses that should protect against current and future SARS-CoV-2 variants. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android devices by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Remember, we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <music>